you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. This is the second to the last time I will ask you to do that as you see us moving closer and closer toward the end of this book. We're in chapter 13 this morning, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 13. And then next week, we will wrap up this series with one of the most beloved benedictions in all of the Scripture, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. But if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 2 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Oh Lord, we ask this morning that in your word you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would show us his majesty, the wonder of who he is, and the greatness of what he has done for us. Help us, O oh Lord. This we ask. In Christ's precious name. Amen. This is the final set of instructions and encouragements that Paul is giving to the church at Corinth. As we come now to the end of this letter, I think we realize that this must have been a very hard letter for Paul to write. He had to defend himself against attacks. He had to be sharp and at times disciplinary with a congregation that he loved deeply. He had to keep them on the path of following Jesus. And so... This final section shows us that Paul's concern in this letter was for the Corinthian believers and their walk with the Lord. 
that even though Paul defended himself throughout the letter and defended his ministry, he ends on a note of encouragement to the congregation. And that even when he was defending his ministry, he was doing it for their benefit. So this section is, in, is designed to encourage and to give the Corinthians assurance of their salvation in Christ. And the truth is, we need that too. We need encouragement. We need assurance. We need God's word to help us at the difficult times in life. And so, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is also speaking to you and me as well. And he tells us three things this morning from our text. First, he speaks of reflection. That is, he tells the Corinthians and us to reflect upon our walk with Jesus, to examine ourselves and our lives. And then second, Paul tells us of the response that we should have as followers of Jesus. That once we have looked at our lives and our faith, there is a response that should come from us. And then finally, he speaks to the entirety of the congregation and he urges on them restoration. That they would be restored as a congregation. That love would be once again the rule in Corinth. Reflection. Response. Restoration. Let's begin then with Paul's encouragement to reflection. And Paul begins here in verse 5 with what seems to be a very sharp sentence. He writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now when we first read this, we may think that Paul doubts whether they are even believers. That they need to examine themselves to find out if they even believe in Jesus. And after all we have read in this letter, that would not be that surprising. After all, Corinth was a place racked with sin and division and arguments and accusation and gossip. But is that what Paul really means here? Is Paul really poking at the Corinthians? Telling them he's not sure of their salvation. I think the answer to that is given in the next two sentences. Paul writes, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? And so Paul uses this verb test again. It's very similar to the verb for examine. But what he's telling them is you need to prove to yourself. You need to be approved. This is something Paul wants them to see. He wants them to see proof of their faith when they examine themselves. And when he asks, it's almost as if he says, don't you realize that Christ is in you? The question that he asks expects a yes answer. That's not obvious from the English, but it is behind it in the Greek. And we all understand what that works like. We ask questions of others, especially parents of children, in which there's only one answer. You ask a question, and what you want to hear is yes. There's no option for no. That's what Paul's doing here. 
But think of how encouraging that would be to the Corinthians, where Paul says, don't you know that Christ is in you? And by the way, answer that, yes, I know Christ is in me. The idea is for the Corinthians to reflect internally and to be assured of their walk with Christ. Now, why would Paul do this? The letter itself gives us the answer. The church at Corinth would have been confused. They would have especially been confused about what it means to be a, a Christian. Excuse me. Because Paul had come and shared the gospel of grace with them. But then opponents had come in and criticized him and the gospel. And they set up another standard. They told the Corinthians that they needed to believe different things. That they needed to go back to the old ways. And so they would have been at a loss to know who they should listen to. Paul had brought them the gospel, but now he was gone. And the others who were leading now were saying something different. Do you sometimes feel overwhelmed by all of the conflicting teaching in the world today? Do you wonder what it means to be a Christian when people keep changing the definition of what a Christian is? Well, then listen to Paul. That's why this word is here for us today. And, and what does Paul tell us? Well, he uses two verbs, examine and test. And they are synonyms. They are very similar in meaning. They involve evaluation, proof. What Paul is saying is that they must look at themselves and evaluate whether they are in the faith and whether Christ is in them. This is a self-reflective process. It is an internal examination. So what do we look for then in this examination? This is where we must rely on the rest of Scripture. Paul does not give us a list here in our text. But he has done that in some sense earlier in the letter and in his other letters. Let's think about what Paul has stressed throughout 2 Corinthians. He stressed humility, that Christians are to be humble people, that they are to have the mark of Christ in their life, that there was no one more humble than Jesus on this earth. And so as we examine ourselves, we are to look for the mark of Christ. The other thing that Paul stresses is love. Self-sacrifice for others. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we will follow Jesus in loving others, in sacrificing for others, because that was all of Jesus' life. He lived for the benefit of others. We could also go to Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 5 and see the fruit of the Spirit where Paul talks about joy, peace, gentleness, and self-control. We should examine ourselves. Are you joyful? Are you gentle? Do you have self-control? Do you know peace? Because all of these things mark the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if Christ is in you, then his character will show out from you. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, this is a subjective test. He's asking them to examine themselves. There is no box that they can check. 
There is no standard criteria to be fulfilled. This is simply an honest examining of your life in the light of Scripture. If we're honest with ourselves, often we would prefer a list with percentages and objective values that we could hit. We'd like to know that we hit at least the 52% threshold of humility. And that will let us know that we are in Christ. But that's not what Paul tells us to do. He tells us to take a serious look at our lives and to see if Christ is central in our lives. Have you done that? Do you make a habit of doing that each and every week, each and every day? Is Jesus at the core of who you are? Do you seek to follow him and to display his character? Not perfectly, but you follow Jesus. But there's also an external aspect to this examination. Self-reflection and examination are important, but they are not the sole criteria. We can also be encouraged by a less subjective external standard that is provided by the church. And Paul hints at this in verse 6. He writes, I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, this appears at first glance to be an ironic comment, that as if he is putting himself to the test of the Corinthians. I hope I haven't failed your test, is how we might read this. But that can't be what Paul is doing here, because the entire letter is Paul defending himself and his ministry, and he has never put himself under the test of the Corinthians. No, Paul knows he passes this test. He's been telling us that week upon week upon week. He follows the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows the word of God. He seeks the benefit and blessing of others. He ministers the gospel. So what does Paul mean here when he talks about this test? I think this gets back to the origin of the Corinthians' faith and the church. Paul founded this church by coming to Corinth and sharing the gospel. And the congregation exists. And therefore, everyone who believes is a believer because of Paul. If Paul had not come, they would not have the gospel. There would be no church. There would be no salvation. They would not know Jesus. If Paul were false, so would they be. And so what Paul's doing here is he's trying to get them to see that his passing the test means they have passed the test. There is an external standard and test here. They are a part of the church. It's not just an internal looking. It is knowing that they are a part of the body of Christ, a congregation with others around them to encourage them and spur them on. They are not on their own. This is why the church is important. Far too many people in our day are what I call Lone Ranger Christians. That is, they think they can live their lives without the church. That the church is not that important. So long as there's me and my Bible and Jesus, I can grow in Christ and be safe. And often, they view the church 
as being restricting on what they can believe or restricting on what they can do. And so they don't want the church. But the truth is, as Paul tells us here, that the church and its leaders, here in this case, Paul, are actually used by God to give us assurance. Our leaders in the church, our brothers and sisters in the church, come alongside us and point us to Jesus. And they encourage us to let us know that we are in the faith, that Christ is in us because they tell us they see Jesus in us. We need that external standard as well. This external examination validates our internal examination. An example of this would be the call of a pastor. When a, pa when a man feels called to be a pastor, when he has an internal calling to preach God's word and to pastor God's people, that is a good thing. But he doesn't just stand up then and say, I'm a pastor, follow me. That's not how it works. What he needs is the external validation of the church to say, yes, we see gifts in you. We want to help you and encourage you in tra being trained in those gifts. We want to help you to be the best pastor you can be. There is a melding of an internal examination and an external examination, and they must be together. The church can't walk up to a man and say, you're going to be our pastor. And he says, no, 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 I can't do that. I don't feel called to that. Then he's not a pastor. But a man can't also just say, I'm going to be the pastor. And when people around him go, no, I don't think so, so much. He can't just make himself a pastor. So it is with the Christian. We need that internal examination and we need that external examination as well. Being involved in the church is essential for your growth in Christ. Not just so that you can have things to do, but to assure us that we really are following Jesus. And if we go astray, the church is there to bring us back. There is a reason why Jesus established the church. There is a reason why he thinks the church is important, and you should too. Paul then goes on to point them to a second aspect beyond reflection, action. Reflection is important, but it is not the end. Paul calls upon them to give a response to what he has said and what they have learned. Because after all, we can think that we are humble, but unless we act in humility, we're not really humble. It's not just a state of mind. Action is the outworking or evidence of the state of who we are. And so Paul wants us to make sure that we see this and it's important. And so he begins here in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Now the word here for pray is less about the act of praying. Don't get in your mind here that Paul is on his knees, hands clasped, praying, although he did that quite often. What this word often means is a sense of a fervent wish or a desire. So, for example, when John writes, I pray that all may go well with you in his third letter. He's not just praying for them. He's wishing, he's desiring that for them. 
And when Paul writes in Romans 9 of his countrymen, he says, I could wish that I were accursed for their salvation. It's his fervent desire. And so what is it that Paul really wants? It's actually quite simple. He wants them to do what is right and not to do what is wrong. There is a general aspect of obedience to this. This is how Paul describes the Christian life in Romans chapter 7. He says, I want to do what is right. And I want to avoid doing what is wrong. This is what James writes about in his letter. How works reflect the reality of faith. If you say you believe something, it should be that your actions back that up. If not, then you should wonder if it's just talk. But there's also a specific aspect to this as well. Paul has been telling the Corinthians to do certain things. He's pointed them toward generosity, pointed them toward humility, purity. He's told them to conduct discipline. And now he's making clear that he's done that for their good. He says, don't do this so I can have an opportunity to be impressive. That's what he means in verse 7. Not that we may appear to have met the test. You see, the test offered by his opponents were, are you strong? Are you a leader? And if you are, you will come in and you will knock some heads and yell at some people and tell them what to do and be in charge. And Paul says, I'm not concerned with appearing strong. He actually says later, I'm willing to be weak when you are strong. He says, I hope I don't have to come and discipline you and use my apostolic authority. I would be ecstatic if you would handle this on your own and do what is right and not do what is good and have lives that picture Jesus. And I can be a humble, quiet visitor. That's what Paul says. He doesn't care about the chance to come and look apostolic. No. It's more important that the Corinthians are assured of their walk with Christ than that Paul looks strong. Obedience to God's word is a sign to us that our faith is real. Now, action can be intellectual as well. Paul comes to this in verse 8. He says, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. He wants them to obey. He wants them to do what is right, he says. But then the question comes, how do we know what is right? That is the great problem of our day. When I was younger, the great problem facing the church was relativism. It was, there is no right or wrong. There is no truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. They're just as valid and good as each of them are. But today, right and wrong are fluid. Much of what was wrong before is now deemed right. And our society openly declares that biblical right is wrong. And the opposite is true as well. It declares what the Bible calls wickedness is right and you must do it. I've just described for you social media. Where it is insufficient to the mob 
to be right without being shouting about the right. In other words, if you aren't vocal enough about what society says is right, you are wrong. And the truth is they have turned the Bible on its head. They've called good evil and evil good. How we can know what is right and be able to do it is to know the truth, Paul says. The verb here, cannot do, means to have power or ability. We might translate it this way. For we have no power against the truth, but for the truth. Paul is saying that he has no authority against the truth. The truth limits his authority. What he will do and what he will tell others to do is bounded by God's word. Not by the latest poll numbers. Not by the angriest voices in our press or our society. It's the unchanging word of God. Now, these limits are important. And he pushes on with this in verses 9 and 10. He's continuing on with the principle that if the Corinthians are acting properly, if they're acting according to the truth of God, he will not have any show of power. And I'm okay looking weak, Paul says. I don't want to be severe when I arrive. I don't want to have to be sharp in order to build you up. And the reason is, is because you are committed to the truth. You know God's word and you respond to it. That's what Paul wants for them. In order to respond properly with your life and actions, you have to know the truth. You cannot act rightly without knowing what is right. To follow Jesus, you have to study God's word. There is no other option for you. Following Jesus means knowing God's word. Well, Paul has encouraged the Corinthians and us to examine ourselves and to see that their actions and thoughts follow the truth. Now he tells them to aim for restoration. And this is appropriate because this church at Corinth was split by divisions and infighting. This goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One of the very first things that Paul tells this church is that you're divided and you have a party spirit. You walk around saying, I'm a Peter. No, I'm a Paul. No, I'm of Apollos, or most piously, I'm of Jesus. But the whole idea here is that I'm against all of the rest of y'all. And Paul says that's not what a church is to be like. Now, why does Paul stress this here at the end of this letter? What does this have to do with assurance and encouragement? Well, Jesus had given... The great sign of believers in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. He says, they will know you are my disciples by the precision of your theology. Wait, that's not in your Bible? How about, they will know you are my disciples by the great number of people you baptize and witness to. That's not in your Bible either? 
No, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. John heard Jesus when he said that. He repeated it three times in his first letter. And notice that this is not just some kind of vague and general love. Paul is not calling us, Jesus is not calling us to generalities, to squishiness. No, it is a specific love. It is a love for each other. Paul doesn't call us to a generalized act of kindness. He calls us to selfless love in the congregation. And this is hard. You know, it's been said, it is really easy to love the world. It's just hard to love those people that make up the world. Isn't that true? Isn't it easier to think about a general love for the church than to think about loving the person who's just annoyed you or made life difficult for you? Or caused issues for you? That's true. I don't care whether you're five years old or 55 years old. It's hard. But that's what Paul calls us to. And so he gives a series of staccato statements. It's almost like Paul gets out a gospel machine gun and fires verbs as bullets. In verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And these are single words in the Greek. Rejoice, restore, comfort, agree, peace. Paul wants no extraneous material to get in the way. He wants us to see the importance of unity and what it looks like. And so he tells us first to rejoice. This is a command that Paul gives often. And what we have to see here is this is a call to joy, not for the individual, but for the whole body. That the whole body would rejoice together. What greater expression of unity can, be, can there be than to find joy in each other? And then Paul tells them to aim for restoration. This phrase is one word. Its basic meaning is to put something back in place or to mend it. When Jesus comes upon James and John, the fishermen, they are at the side, the bank of the river, mending their nets. Same word. They are fixing their nets so that they will be useful, so that they will do what they are intended to do. That's what Paul says. Mend yourselves. Mend your congregation so that you can be what you are called to be. Be restored. And Paul puts the responsibility for that on them. He tells them to work for unity, to aim to be restored. And he gives them practical advice about how to do that. Comfort each other. Agree with one another about fundamental things. Too often, we see unity as someone else's job. But Paul reminds me that unity starts with me. I am to get over my hurt. I am to reach out to my brother or sister. There will be no unity in the church unless I am committed to it and I act on it. I am not an observer of unity. 
I do not stand by and wait for others to do that work. I must roll up my sleeves and engage. Finally, Paul shows the fruit of this unity. Peace. Peace among believers shows that our relationship is founded on and is dependent on the Lord. Do you see the mutual relationship of this in verse 11? Finally, brothers, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. There is a command to us to live in peace. It is directed at us. It is something we are to do. But that command is linked to a promise. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Living in peace is a consequence of an agreed state of mind. And that state of mind is fixed on Jesus. But once again here, action is important. It's not that we sit quietly and wait for the blessings of God to come to us. I think sometimes that great hymn, Showers of Blessings, gives us a wrong impression about blessings. As if we are to stand out in our front yard, maybe with a bucket, and wait for God to fill it up. That's not how you receive the promises of God. You receive the promises of God by striving. Jesus tells us that we seize the kingdom with violence. That we strive to enter the, the narrow gate. That we see the promise of God and we hold on to it and we never let go. We pursue the blessings of God through the promises of God. And so Paul tells them to actively pursue that peace and unity. And he does it in a way that is odd to our ears. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What could be less 2020, 2021 than a holy kiss? I can't even give you a handshake. I'm elbow bumping and fist bumping, right? But even though that sounds so odd to our ears, it's important because it's about the family of Christ. If you think a holy kiss sounds weird to you, you have to understand that in Roman society, that would have been unthinkable. You would never kiss or embrace someone that was not a close relative. It just wasn't done. And if someone kissed someone else, that's how you knew they were family. Do you see why Paul tells them that? It's so that we know we are family. We're not just a group that gathers together. We're not just an organization with a common mission or common likes. We are the family of God. And he has called us together for all eternity to be his children with Jesus as our elder brother. That is who we are. Family in Christ. The Lord wants you to know that you belong to him. And he encourages you to examine yourself and your life. As you do that in the light of God's word, I hope that that brings you assurance and peace. I also hope that it causes you to seek unity and peace with fellow believers. If you have never done that, or if you are confused or find your life lacking in this examination, I have great hope for you today. Because it's not about what you can do. 
What you do is merely a reflection of what Jesus has already done. So if you lack assurance today, go to Jesus. If you don't know this unity and peace in your life, go to Jesus. Jesus changed a mess of a people in Corinth. He changed a murderer like Paul. He can change you. Jesus is all you need. Let's pray.